Hello and welcome to Calamity, a podcast about natural and not-so-natural disasters. In each episode, we examine a catastrophic event from world history. We are your hosts, the Coolman Sisters. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Jillian. Normally, there'd be a third sister, Jayma, but she decided to abscond to the Czech Republic uh, this week, so we're going it without her. Yep, she um, thought that she'd have uh, apparently more fun uh, over there with her best friend and our cousin without, um, you know, keeping up on our podcast schedule. I can't believe that her priorities are so out of whack, but we'll forgive her this once. Sitting here with us talking about death and destruction, but no, she decided to go on vacation. <laughs> 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 so we'll do our best, but we are a little handicapped without our primary fact checker. Um, <laughs> that's it. Um, today's, or I should say this week's uh, calamity is going to be the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion, uh, which took place in 1986. And I had an awful lot of, well, quote-unquote fun researching this because uh, the story is interesting in and of itself, but also I just kind of love the space program and NASA and all all things um, related. So yeah, I I started. I couldn't stop researching. I feel like we should explain to our listeners the unnatural devotion that the Coolman sisters had to the, the the movie Apollo 13, and maybe we would have all loved NASA, you know, had that movie not come out when we were in our formative years. But it certainly solidified for me yeah. <laughs> this deep-seated devotion and admiration for uh, like all things NASA related so are the um, flowers blooming in Houston <laughs> that's a negative Jim I don't have the measles <laughs> <laughs> such a useful book definitely um, okay yes Apollo 13 I loved as a kid and I think it's helpful to understand this disaster a little bit, having seen that, although the Apollo program was prior to the shuttle. So initially when we were going up to orbit the planet and then go to the moon, that was called the Apollo program. You know, it was Apollo 11 that landed on the moon, and then I think it went up to 17 or 18 before uh, we stopped going to the moon. Mm-hmm. And at that point, the world was kind of changing. That we were getting sort of out of the worst of the Cold War, and um, the economy was a little different than it had been uh, during the Apollo program, which was just kind of more of like a post-World War II kind of world. Mm-hmm. So at this point, we're in the 80s. The shuttle program started in 1981, and the idea was. Uh, we would have a space shuttle that uh, didn't get destroyed upon uh, launch or, or uh, re-entry, because that's how Apollo worked, of course. The only piece that ever came back to Earth was that little cylindrical capsule that they come, they splash into the water, and yeah. even that is so destroyed, the heat shield by the time it's gone through, they're not reusable. So right. this was like making a little airplane, or a really big airplane, 
mm-hmm. and uh, sending that up into space and then being able to reuse most of the pieces. So the space shuttle, and there were there were several different space shuttles. I think there were, nope, I shouldn't even guess at the number that there totally were. Um, I was going to say I think there were five, but it could be that there are five left. Oh, okay. Two of, two of them exploded at some point, um, which I'll get to. But um, they're on display around different places around the world. There's at least one in California, at least one in Texas, um, one in Florida, I think, and there's definitely one in Washington, D.C. That's the one that I got to see a few years ago when we went, uh, well, not you, Caitlin, but Jayla and I went to D.C. for the Women's March mm-hmm. um, right after the last inauguration. So we went out and looked at the space shuttle, and I can't even remember which one it was. There's like <laughs> Discovery and Endeavor. They all have these great names. Mm, yeah. Um, so did you guys but, get to just see it and walk around the outside, or was it actually yeah, you something? Yeah, can't, you can't go in it. Okay. You can't touch it or anything. But what I did notice, especially, um, because it's made for going into space, and space doesn't have um, stuff in it, uh, <laughs> it's not made of, like, thick metal or something. It's covered in this, like, fabric. What? Um, like, felt. Yeah. Um, I mean, at the nose and the front of the wings where it had to re-enter and it would get really hot, it has a heat shield, which is metallic, so uh-huh. metallic material, but but the rest of it is, is um, yeah, out of, I mean, it looks together like a really poorly made quilt, and wow, I would know, not have guessed go, that. I know, it's crazy, well, and because they went up and back and up and back and up and back, and they'd get repaired every time, but um, I mean, it looks like a pretty sad old Old space shuttle. Like it's it's worse for wear. Mm-hmm. It looks uh, fancy. Uh, oh, and I said earlier that it was a really big plane, but actually it's a it's kind of a fat plane, but it's not larger than than a big airplane. Um, okay. In fact, there are some pictures online when they were delivering the new shuttles from because they were built. Um, let's see. They were built out west somewhere, but then they had to be delivered to Florida, and they were flown on the back of, like, a 747. Interesting. So there's, there's pictures of that where, you know, they're, like, attached to the top of it. Um, I'm sure that was a pretty obnoxious flight. To have to yeah. To have a space shuttle on top of you, but. Yeah, that would really ruin your aerodynamics. Yeah. Well, and then I think when they when they stopped doing the space program um, in 2011, and they were distributing the remaining shuttles out to the locations where they were going to be put on display, I think they drove them. Um, like you can't drive a space shuttle really, but like they put it on the bed of a truck and like drove right. it across country. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, that has nothing to do with the story. I should probably tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like all these little details, though. I mean, I just never would have guessed that it was had some sort of fabricy outside. So, and whether or yeah. not that plays into the story down the road, I still think that that's 
an interesting factoid. It is. I agree. And so the idea behind the shuttle program initially, as I said, it was kind of a different economy than we had when the Apollo program was going. And mm-hmm. the government didn't really want to put that much more money into space since we'd already gone to the moon right? a bunch of times. They were like, well, you know, why are we paying for this when there's other things? And so the shuttle program was supposed to pay for itself eventually um, because they could fly, uh, they could you know, come back to Earth and land and then take off again. They thought they would take the commercial um, route, maybe. Uh, sort of. They would take payloads for other, for maybe government agencies or other governments, private companies, people who wanted to put a satellite up there mm-hmm. or something else needed to be taken up to space. <laughs> Certainly, um, and what it was used for a lot was delivering supplies and, and things to the International Space Station, um, which is no longer near, as it's called. Uh, so, and it delivered people and supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was initially, when the idea was first put forward, they were thinking they could do over 60 flights a year, which would be more than one a week. That's a lot. Uh, it's very ambitious. It's very ambitious, and it never even got close. Um, I think the most that they ever did in a single year was nine. Yeah. So they were hoping to, like, ramp up, but it actually was a lot harder than you think, because even though they could reuse the shuttle, there were a lot of repairs that had to be made in between, mm-hmm. and it was still pretty experimental, and so they were constantly evaluating safety and trying to improve mm-hmm. um, on things, especially as, you know, little things that would go wrong, then they would figure out how to fix it, et cetera. Um, the shuttle, um, the shuttle itself, is the piece that looks like an airplane. And then there are three other pieces that you'll see when the shuttle is taking off. And the first one is a really big external fuel tank. Uh-huh. It's, and that external fuel tank is, is, I would say, larger than the shuttle itself. It's just a big, um, I mean, it looks, it's about the size of the fuselage of an airplane, but it's full of liquid fuel. Um, and that's because it takes, an insane amount of fuel to break uh, out of the Earth's gravity and atmosphere and and stuff. So by the time it gets up to space, it has almost no fuel left. There's once you're in space, it's easy to just float around, but um, getting out of the Earth is pretty hard. So it's got this big external fuel tank, and then on either side of it, it's, there are these two rockets. They're called the solid rocket boosters. Let me double check that. SRVs, yeah. Okay. And so imagine imagine a rocket. Uh, like a long, narrow, pointy rocket. Well, Are you imagining it? I actually am looking at a picture of the Challenger okay. now. Um <laughs> And I recommend listeners do as well. But I, I feel as though it's it's common enough in American culture, you know, unless <laughs> we have someone who's not in the American culture listening, or you know, uh, that that pictures, you know, iconic pictures of either this tragedy or um, just that 
time frame, um, uh, you know, the, the missions, the, the, the space missions that, that we were up to at that point, it, it's just a lot of pictures of that type of, I mean, you know, kids' toys and everything, everything like that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what, what I've not really questioned before was we've got this really big, I'm going to call it maybe brown, but you're probably going to call it red, I don't know, the, the, the fuel tank. Um, yeah. It's brown what color? It, what, what is it? Brownish red? <laughs> Brownish red, yeah. So it actually doesn't do anything for combustion of the fuel. It actually must be connected to those two exterior smaller cylinders that, that are, are the rockets. Is that how it works? No, the solid rocket boosters are—they are full of solid fuel. I don't know what solid fuel is. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's some kind of solid that can then burn. And then that one, as I said, is full of liquid, and it's attached to the shuttle itself. Uh huh. So it's got some hoses or something that attaches it to the shuttle. And okay. The three really big. Um. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. At the bottom of the of the yeah. airplane looking thing. What are those called? They're like the well, rocket thing. They're um the exhaust. exhaust. The thing the fire comes out of bow. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> oh my our our father's so, gonna be so disappointed when we when he hears this. <laughs> oh, like he knows a lot about space. <laughs> I know. Um so there there you might see if you're looking at the rear end of a space shuttle that there mm-hmm. are five of those, three big ones and two small ones. Uh-huh. So the three big ones are, are what gets help them get off the launch pad, and they use uh-huh. they burn the fuel that's in that big tank. Okay. And then once, they're, once they get um, to a certain height, the boosters, those solid rocket boosters, have spent all their fuel, or most uh-huh. of their fuel, and they detach from mm-hmm. the sides of the shuttle, and they fall back to Earth, and they are um, also reusable. So they've got a little beacon. They fall into the ocean. Oh, they have parachutes, so they slow down enough. So they don't get damaged. When they nice. hit the water, they fall uh, to the ocean, and then we go pick them up and use them again for the next one. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And this, this, that, I'm bringing a up that piece because that's the piece that goes wrong. So we're going to be talking a lot about the solid rocket boosters. Okay. Um, and then the the external tank, once the shuttle gets to space, they just um, they just detach from it and that just it floats away. It's a space junk. So that Dang piece it. is not, re- <laughs> not reusable. I suppose it can eventually maybe fall back to Earth and burns up in the atmosphere on its way down. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that piece is is not reusable, but all the other pieces are. Okay. And the solid. Okay. Well, let me talk about this particular um, launch. So, at this point, it's it's 1986. We're about five years into the shuttle program, and um, we've had I want to say at this point like over 50 successful flights. So it's been super. Um, it's been super successful as a program. Mm-hmm. You know, you, we are, you know, sending sending them up again, not sixty a year by any means. Right. Uh, by the time we shut the program down in 2011, we've done 
well over 120. I don't know the exact number, but um, so the challenger is going to uh, go up this time, and it, it wasn't because there have been so many launches. It wasn't necessarily big news when a new shuttle was going to take off, mm-hmm. but this one was because um, it was the first time the civilian was going to get to go to space. Um, and they had had a contest, uh, which uh, that teachers so could... upsetting. Yeah, <laughs> I know. People, I know. Man, there was a contest involved. Yeah, okay. and it was it was to find a, a teacher who would go, uh, and and it was she would teach a couple lessons from space, oh. and the entire country, and probably from other nations as well would watch. Yeah. Uh, so so school children had been learning about space and preparing for this for a, a long time. And uh, her name was Kristen McAuliffe. And by all means, or by all accounts, she was absolutely fantastic human being. Fun and smart and lovable. Mm-hmm. So she was on board. There were six other people. The commander was Dick Scobie. He'd, uh, it wasn't his first flight or anything. He'd been up before. The pilot was Mike Smith. There were three mission specialists, Ronald McNair, Judith Resnick, and Ellison Onizuka. And mm-hmm. there was a payload specialist named Gregory Jarvis. And Kristen McCullough, the teacher, she had also, uh, when they were training her, they also trained her to be a payload specialist as well. So she was going as a teacher, but in addition to that, they, you know, there were other things they needed her to do as part of the crew. So cool. her and Gregory were the two payload specialists. Um, let's see. Here we are. Okay. It's supposed to launch on January 27th. And again, the whole nation is paying attention because the school's are supposed to, you know, it's being broadcast live and all the schools are supposed to tune in on TV and watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are delays. And, and so this is, it becomes a big national story because of these delays and because all these school children are, they keep trying to watch it, but it keeps getting delayed. So January 22nd, uh, there were delays in, and I don't know the details about this, but delays in the previous mission I think it was like um, they had another space shuttle that was still up in space, and it was delayed getting back, and they didn't have the staff to have people paying attention to a launch while they were concurrently trying to land one. Yeah. So they had to get that one down before they could get this one up. So that delayed it to the 23rd and then again to the 24th. Mm And then on the 24th, they... Uh, determined they had to move it another day to the 25th, and that's because there was bad weather at the TAL. Mm-hmm. And the TAL is the transatlantic abort landing, which I didn't even know this existed, but there are several different locations where we've got a, uh, an extra runway, and this one we were going to use was in Dakar, Senegal. Uh-huh. Maybe you've heard of it? I have. I've been there. Perhaps. Um, So that was where it was supposed to land, but there was bad weather. Oh, and the idea is uh, if something goes wrong during the launch, which is 
one of the most dangerous parts. Probably right. the most dangerous part, really, because you've got all that firepower attached to you. Yeah. I mean, getting back to Earth is also dangerous, but by then, you know, your your issue is dealing with the heat and falling through the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. You don't have any fuel left, mm-hmm. so it's not like you're going to explode. Whereas mm-hmm. this one, different things could happen, could go wrong where they would need to abort the mission. And... uh so they could, I don't know exactly how it would happen, and I don't think it ever did have to happen in the history of the program, but they were always prepared to abort the mission and bring, turn the shuttle around and land it. Like fly it like uh, a plane and, and yeah. land it. Wow. Yeah. Um, because they were taking off from Florida, they would need to land um, on the coast of Africa somewhere. Uh-huh. So Senegal was our number one site. And then, as I said, there was bad weather in the car. So they said, well, let's use our site in Casablanca uh, in Morocco. <laughs> so that's fine. Uh, but Casablanca's landing site was not equipped for night landing. It didn't have the right equipment for the shuttle to land in the dark. Mm-hmm. So they had to move the, by this point it was afternoon, um, and it was going to be, if, you know, if they had to abort, it would be night. And so they decided to move the launch to the next morning. So what are we at now? 26, I think? January 26th? And then uh, there was a bad weather expected at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Mm-hmm. On the 26th, so they decided to move the launch to the 27th. You can, I mean, I can just imagine how frustrated everyone was at this point. I know, because it's going so like half day launch, by half day by half day. They're going to launch on the 27th, and of course, every time that they're getting ready to launch, there's all these checklists they have to go through and things they've got to check. Yeah, and, like we know from um, uh, from Apollo 13. Yes, exactly. So at one point, can go wrong. I just want to um, point out, at one point, I could actually list off all the things that were checked <laughs> <laughs> because of that movie. But no, I think that um, I'm too old now and my memory, is, my memory is shot. But anyway, go ahead. What I learned today regarding that, there was uh, someone in Apollo 13, who was referred to as Fido. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Well, I was watching footage of the of mission control during this. I mean, someone was in there filming, and you can watch it on um, YouTube, and they're talking about Fido again. I was like, oh, he still works there. Uh, no, Fido is, it stands for Flight Director of Operations or something. It's, uh-huh. it's the title. Okay. <laughs> and I thought it was someone's name. <laughs> How are we doing, Fido? Yeah, like a little nickname. <laughs> that wasn't his name. That was the position. Okay, okay, so we're doing our checks on the 27th, the morning of the mm-hmm. 27th, and there are some problems with the exterior access hatch. First, mm-hmm. there's an indicator light. Uh, the light is supposed to tell you whether or not the door is successfully locked, and the yep. light itself is malfunctioned. So they've got to fix the light. And then while they're doing that, Another team finds a stripped bolt somewhere. 
just the smallest little things. And so they've got to replace the strip bolt in order to get the door all the way closed. Mm-hmm. And by the time they fix those two things, the wind has picked up, and now it's too yeah. windy to watch. Okay. And by the time the wind dies down and the, everything is fixed, now they, they're outside of their launch window, and they can't. It's too late the day to launch. And so they have to move it to January 28th. Okay. Which turns out to be the actual launch day. Um, but here's some things that are going on. Um, there's a cold front, and I, I mean, it's just really bad weather. And why I think they were just tired of postponing. Cause yeah. I would think, I mean, it would, these were record-breaking cold temperatures. Keep in mind, this is Florida. Mm-hmm. And it is January, but still, it's Florida. And overnight temperatures at Cape Canaveral were was 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. Insanely cold. It yeah. Was, it was, uh, at that time, the, the coldest that had ever been recorded there. Um, and it was expected during the day to get up to, like, 28, 29, so still below freezing. Still and, really cold. Yeah. I know. That's cold for anywhere, let alone Florida. And they, previously the the coldest they had ever launched a space shuttle was 54 degrees. Wow. So this is quite a difference. But a difference. Was, was that a concern then? I mean, did, did, was. Yes. Okay. Yes. So they had a conference call. I mean, it was the engineers, um, who had built the solid rocket boosters. They came from a company called Morton Theocall, often just called Theocall, Theocall. I can't quite remember how they pronounced it. Um, They they were like the subcontractor that NASA had farmed out that particular component to, Mm -hmm. and they, that company was based in Utah. Uh, They had this, conference call because they wanted to alert the NASA people that their engineers had concerns. Uh, The solid booster rockets have, they're built in sections. And so then those sections are like joint and they're sealed together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think there's three or four sections. And at each section, there is... Yeah, there must be three sections. Anyway, uh, there's a pair of O-rings that help to seal the two pieces together. Yes. I mean, it's also sealed with some kind of sealant. But the O-rings are specifically, they're rubber. And okay. You, kind of, you know what an O-ring is. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, it seals. I, I, in fact, I broke one yesterday in my blender. So I really uh-huh. know the importance yeah. of an O-ring. Um <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't help when the the O-ring gets spun up inside the blender. That's not how they operate. No, no, not, not at all. So was it part of your smoothie at that point, or? Yeah, I had to abort the smoothie. Mm-hmm. Abort, it, yeah. <laughs> An O-ring malfunction. You got to yeah. the O-ring um, Yeah. So and and rubber responds uh, greatly to. Um, uh, changes in weather, so yes. you know, r- really yes. cold. It's going to lose its 
elasticity. You are just as smart as these engineers, if not. <laughs> um, because uh, they, that's kind of what they were saying. They, they were like, we've never tested it at this low of a temperature. We don't know what's going to happen. But what we think will happen is that it will become brittle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, we won't be able to expand. And certainly during launch, the the metal does expand and contract because it's going, especially when it's 20 degrees, uh, it's going to suddenly become 5,000 degrees. Yeah. So that no matter what you do, even if you're going from 50 degrees to 5,000, uh, the, the thing is going to expand and contract according to the forces of something, heat. Yeah. Yep, um, but but at that temperature, they didn't think the O-rings would hold, and those O-ring O-ring seals are holding, uh, are separating the fuel from the from from the fuel which is on fire at this point during the launch would be, and then from the shuttle itself, which mm-hmm. you don't want to catch on fire. Yep. Uh, it's a little felt exterior to catch on fire. Um, and previously, they'd already realized that the O-rings were kind of a problem, sort of regardless of temperature. They had figured out that um, sometimes the forces during the launch were causing the first O-ring to get uh, damaged enough to let some of that toxic, or not toxic, but like extremely flammable gas um, through. Mm -hmm. Luckily, the second O-ring had always held, so that was like Mm -hmm. a backup O-ring. There had been a situation where the second O-ring had also gotten burnt pretty bad, but it hadn't, it had never actually gotten through. Which, if it had mm-hmm. gotten through, everyone would have died. Which, spoiler alert, is what happened. Um, so they already knew there was a problem with the O ring, and really, they should have been trying to fix it already. Mm-hmm. But they sort of considered it an acceptable risk mm-hmm. because there was a backup of the second O ring, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it had never actually been a problem before. I mean, it had been a problem, but not like a deadly problem. It's and I guess part, really part of me terrible. part of me has to wonder, like a few, and I don't I don't mean to excuse it at all, but I have to assume based on a project of this caliber and this size and this many people involved and this many contractors involved that this ended up. It resulted in tragedy, and we all therefore know all about this O-ring. But, um, you know, how many other, maybe tens of other things, or or hundreds, I don't know, um, of other minor things maybe had gone wrong that weren't, that just never materialized into an actual threat or an actual problem that, um, you know, people kept their eye on it, and they kind of managed it, and, and it just didn't... Um, you know, forgive the expression, but it didn't blow up. Um, so, uh, yeah. you know, 
and I, and I'm not saying anything bad against uh, NASA, nor do I want to assume that they are just a bunch of negligent people who let errors, you know, truly, I don't work there. I don't know. Maybe this was literally the only thing that was wrong, but um, I have, I don't know, just based on all of our other podcasts, it seems like when you have a, an operation that big, it's not un- out of the question that you might have a few things that truly are going maybe quote unquote wrong, um, but people are keeping their eye on them and it's just part of the, you know, that you just kind of have to accept a few things are going to be not perfect, but you got to keep moving forward. Does that make sense? Like, absolutely. I think, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, certainly there was no one who had evil in their hearts and was like, who cares if the astronauts die? Everyone mm-hmm. thought they were making the best decision they could at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately the people who were at, who had the most knowledge about what was going to happen were the engineers who, although they could like, submit a recommendation, they weren't the ones who ultimately made the decision. It was like the VP of the company yep. who was not an engineer. <laughs> um he was the one who had like negotiated the contract and had, you know, needed to deliver the product. And mm-hmm. um, so it wasn't fully understood just how dangerous it was. They did have a system for things breaking. So you're, I think you're right that there were certain components could be iffy. Uh, and they would, but not every thing, every single thing would cause, them to scrub a launch and say, okay, right. we can't launch until we fix this. And the ones that um, were really dangerous, they called criticality one. Mm-hmm. So if you had a component that if it broke, people would die mm-hmm. or ruin the mission or something, that was called criticality one. You could not, you're not supposed to take off until that's fixed. Uh, and, and even if it has a backup system, you know, if this breaks, people will probably be massively in danger. Because, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, the coffee maker broke. Well, we can still take off if the coffee maker broke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean? <laughs> I mean, probably the astronauts would agree to that, but it's <laughs> not uh, a criticality one. So so really they shouldn't have taken off anyway because the O-rings were considered criticality one. But they kind of let it go because previously only the first O-ring had failed, not the second mm-hmm. one. So, right. I mean, it's still, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, nobody wanted to think about what, what could go wrong. Yep. Okay. And it had already so been delayed, and, and there were students yeah. waiting to, to see. And I mean, there's a lot of pressure going on. And, and, Absolutely. Uh, and pressure yeah. from the, the media, I mean, the press was, was writing about this every day. And, you know, NASA didn't look good. They were... You know, you know, why can't you guys get this right? You've done this, you know, we're giving you all this money from our tax dollars, and how come you can't even get this thing in the air? And just totally mm-hmm. not understanding why they would need to back it up so many days when, yeah, really, only one of those delays was because the door wouldn't shut uh, or the light didn't work or whatever. The yep. others were due to weather and stuff that you couldn't, um, you couldn't really, when it wasn't NASA's fault, but there mm-hmm. was weather in Senegal. Right. <laughs> so and we can't uh, reasonably blame them for that. Uh, also, because this teacher thing was going on, like you said, there was a bunch of buzz about it. All these children were excited, and the school programs had been written around this. So, like, school curriculum had been written around it. So, yeah, 
uh, yes, there was more pressure than normally would have been. I think you're right. So it's one of those situations like most of our, most if not all of our disasters where there are multiple things that went wrong all at once. So it was mm-hmm. pressure plus the absolutely unseasonably cold weather uh, plus the organizational culture of NASA where the engineers mm-hmm. weren't fully listened to and the decisions were made by people who didn't have all the information and that kind of and probably thing. Yeah, probably other things too. Probably so. other things as well. Yeah. So the night before the launch, they there is this um, conference call between the NASA officials and the people at Morton Firefall who built the booster, the solid rocket boosters. Uh-huh. And the engineers thought to be on that call because they were the ones who brought up the problem and, and tried to escalate it up the chain. Then they said, hey, you can't, I mean, the engineers were really clear, like, you can't attempt the launch. We don't know what will happen at when, when it's been 18 degrees, and these these things have been sitting there overnight in this 18 degree weather. They're covered in ice, by the way. There's pictures mm-hmm. of of this thing before it it launched, and there are these giant icicles hanging off everywhere. There was a team. Uh, I, NASA actually hired an ice team, which I don't think probably gets much work in Florida. But uh, they hired an ice team, and they worked through the night to try and chip off the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't get it all off. Because uh, mm-hmm. it's a huge, it's a huge project, um, and they were there was a lot of worry that chunks of ice, because of course it's going to get really hot when it launches, and if chunks of ice could fall off and damage the heat shield or you know the side of the shuttle, which is like I said, pretty thin. Right. So that was a legitimate worry too. Um. So they had this meeting, but here's the thing. NASA, I think they were fed up with the delays. Because NASA's response, the, the, these are the top guys at NASA. They said, um, when the engineers came to them and said, it's too cold to launch, uh, we've only tested the rocket boosters to 53 degrees Fahrenheit. And they came back, and this is a quote from one of the NASA guys. He says, well, Firefall, when the hell do you want me to launch? Next April? Mm-hmm. So they had this totally negative response to the, these guys bringing up the safety concern. And then what, what NASA came back and said is, you guys haven't done enough research. You can't tell me whether or not it's safe to launch at low temperatures uh, because you have never researched at low temperatures. So you can't mm-hmm. be coming to me claiming that a low temperature is going to be bad when you haven't even tested it, which is true, but also pretty stupid, I think, because uh-huh. yeah. uh, they were making a pretty reasonable assumption uh-huh. uh, based on what we know about rubber. What we know, yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, like, they didn't have, they hadn't at that point, because there was no reason to, bother yeah. to take the temperature down and test the O-rings at 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Right. So, so the engineers are told to go back and do the test. And so they do. And it's, keep in mind, this is the evening. We're like 7, 8 o'clock in the evening before the launch. And then, unbeknownst to them, the 
leaders or the head people at Zyphal have another conference call with the NASA officials, and they say, you know what, you know, you're, you're right. We don't have the science to prove that it's not safe. Mm-hmm. So you can go ahead and go. We'll give you the green light. And again, that happens above the engineers' heads. And then they did actually take it back to one of the lead engineers, and they said, like they wrote up a document and said, well, we need you to put it in writing that this is safe. And he wouldn't sign it. It's like, well, oh, I told you it's not safe. And so in the end, it was one of the like VPs of the company that signed it. Um, he really, really regrets that, by the way. I bet he does. I've seen an interview with him. Um, so he signs that next morning. Um, okay, they're still delayed a little bit in the morning, again, because there's so much ice, but they decide to give it an extra hour. They were supposed to take off around 10.30, and instead they roll it back to 11.38. So they uh, load up the shuttle. They've got through in there, and it takes off. Now, they initially, the engineers thought that if it went wrong, it would explode on the launch pad. Mm-hmm. That's what they were expecting. Um, in fact, there is a really um, kind of intense story. One of the main engineers, his name I totally have written down, but not on the right page to be useful, uh, <laughs> Um, well, his first name was Bob. <laughs> I don't see how that's remotely helpful to anyone. That's okay. But he, like, laying in bed the night before, he told his wife, um, the challenge is going to explode tomorrow, which is so sad. I mean, he had tried so hard to get people to listen, mm-hmm. and he, like, it had gone ahead anyway, and he he was confident that it mm-hmm. would explode on the launch pad the next day. But there was nothing he could do to stop it from happening. It was a train in motion, and it wasn't going to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he he actually said that to his wife the night before. So it takes off at 11.38 a.m., and it clears the tower, which at that point, everyone thinks, oh, my God, <laughs> the O-ring tower is amazing. Mm-hmm. They're almost they're kind of starting to celebrate. And it takes this shuttle a while to get to space. Um, so it's it's heading way the heck up there. You can still see it. Uh, it's got a big contrail behind it. And mm-hmm. um, and there's a huge crowd watching live, including, of course, the families of the astronauts, their spouses and children. Um, and the family, the husband and children of the teacher, Krista McAuliffe, are there as well. Uh, everyone's watching. And then at 73 seconds, there's this explosion. Um, well, let's see. Um, as, it, as it takes off, the shuttle begins to roll, which is normal. It's supposed to kind of spin around and make a curve. 
Mm-hmm. As it, it doesn't go straight out of the atmosphere, it makes a little arc. And so it, it turns and makes that curve to search. And at this point, really, the computer is driving it. Um, I mean, Mission Control in Houston has access to everything, but it's kind of already programmed in. It's like on yeah. autopilot. Yep. Houston versus Phil's Tavern. And um, the, the, as it begins that sort of curve, uh, the engines throttled down. So they were initially operating at like 100%. Actually, I think they said 104%. Like uh-huh. full throttle, blasting off. And then uh, at this particular point, they have to uh, cross the, the sound barrier. Mm. And they're also at what is called maximum Q, which is the point at which they're under the most like atmospheric pressure. Mm. So it's like it's really hard on the vessel, the shuttle, and also the rockets and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's under a lot of pressure at that moment, and so they they throttle down the engines to about sixty five percent power, and then uh, and that so that kind of slows them down and helps them to kind of more safely get through that maximum Q section where they break the sound barrier and and they're um, because that part is where like there's a ton of shaking. Mm-hmm. Remember that from Apollo 13? Oh yeah, heck yeah. In fact, have, I was they do it then too. I was gonna ask um, about like the intercoms. Um, I, what I remember from Apollo 13, which is you know very scientific research, but um, I think that they they the guys You're could like an astronaut after you've watched that. I, totally, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you strapped me in. Um, <laughs> I remember the guys like talking to themselves, like the three guys, and they had to yell at each other. Um, I don't think that there was much communication or any communication. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I can see it frame by frame. I know Um, know every word to that movie. (laughs) (laughs) So, I wrote a paper about it once in grad school. (laughs) In grad school, even. yeah. No, but the communication between the people in the cockpit and the um, tower down below, uh, because they, of all the noise. In this case, I mean, I think you're right about Apollo, but in this case, they can talk, and they do. They okay. Talk. Okay. Um, and that's all recorded, so you can listen to the actual conversation. Okay. It's all online. Um. So, so, so everything, sorry, everything even inside the cockpit for the for the the six passengers, ter- perfectly fine. Everything was normal. It started to shake. That was also normal. Yeah. So there re- really was no warning um, until just the moment that the explosion happened. Yeah. Pretty much. Okay. So um, after it throttles down and it, it gets through that maximum Q, then it's going to throttle back up mm-hmm. uh, to continue. And so that's kind of the last thing that gets said over the radio. Um, the folks on the ground say, you know, you're going to, like, go, I think it's like, go to throttle up, something along those lines. And the commander responds back and says, copy that, power up. And, again, he's not actually doing it. It's all automatic. But they're confirming that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the last thing that they say over the radio with the folks on the ground but after uh after it's all over there is a voice a talk, like a voice recorder 
inside this shuttle that records their conversations inside, just like mm-hmm. there isn't an airplane cockpit. Yep. And no yep. one listens to it unless something goes wrong. Uh-huh. Um, and so the the actual last thing that gets recorded is the pilot, um, Smith was his name, uh, Mike Smith. He says, uh-oh. And that's the last thing before the explosion. So so there was at least enough time to say, uh-oh. Uh, and they're not sure what he would have seen if he would have seen, like, uh, maybe a temperature gauge doing something or, you know, who knows what, what it was that made him say that. Because once, once the... Once the explosion happens, um, there's still all that fuel, both because they're they're like maybe halfway to space. They're at like I want to say 48,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Airplanes at their highest usually fly around 35, 36. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a good 10, 15 thousand feet above that. Um, way, way, way up in the sky, and. Uh, it explodes and the pieces start streaking. Well, they kind of go in an arch because they were moving so fast. And I didn't really think about this before. They don't just explode and then fall to earth immediately. They continue to they explode, but they continue to move forward. Um, forward. And so actually, like the the main part of the shuttle is thought to have gone up to like sixty five thousand feet. Mm. Um, almost twice as high as airplanes normally fly mm-hmm. um, because, again, it was moving so fast when the explosion happened that it took it a while to kind of arc back down and start yeah. to calm. So there's confusion on the ground. You can see really clearly uh, that like, the contrail has stopped continuing to go up, but you can't quite see the pieces. It's too high in the sky. Um, but clearly there's been some kind of something. And after a few seconds, um, you can see the uh, those rockets, the solid rocket boosters. Uh-huh. Um, even one of them is badly damaged because the O-ring burnt through, but it still functions. They disconnect, and like just like they are supposed to do, but not at this point. Um, right. They disconnect, and they are going to fall to Earth. They still have fuel in them, and they're they're supposed to fall into the ocean. Um, so, so you can kind of see them in the footage. They disconnect and kind of whiz off. Like mm-hmm. a rocket that's kind of out of control. They whiz off in weird directions. Yeah, like a bottle um, rocket. Exactly. And then the, uh, the, the rest of the main kind of wreckage that didn't just get burnt up. Um, well, it's not really burning up, what they say happens is it's atmospheric forces, so the shuttle itself actually gets torn apart. Oh, by, wow. Um, by the force, just the atmospheric forces, pressure and speed and and things like that. Um, the crew quarters are pretty well yeah, they're very well built. Um, and they didn't know this the day of, but um, they learned it uh, once they once they finished the rescue, not the rescue, the retrieval operations. The, the crew did not die in the explosion. They're, um, they, that 
piece of, again, like just the, the quarters that they were sitting in, uh, was a self-contained piece, and it mm-hmm. broke off from the rest of the shuttle and, again, you know, flew up to 65,000 feet and then, then, then fell to, to the ocean. And they had time to put on these, um, it's like an external oxygen tank, that, but they don't wear it. I think in some of the initial flights, maybe in, in Apollo, they are wearing their spacesuits. <laughs> but uh-huh. At this point, they've, ha- they've done it so many times, and, and it's pressurized, so they don't need to wear all that gear. Yeah. But they have it in case they need it, and they had time to to attach the, that breathing apparatus, at least at least three of them of the seven um, were wearing one, and it was turned on. Hmm. Um, and this is all and, things they can do from their seats. Obviously, they're not getting up and walking around. I know that that's yes. stupid, but they can reach it, and they can. It's just over their heads. It's like you know, like what what you would do when you're um, in the event of something going on in an airplane and something, you know, is within arm's reach and you put it over your head and that that type of thing? Yes. Okay. Um, there is, you do have to, in addition to just attaching it to yourself, you have to turn it on and um, someone in the back row had to turn them on. So it's not clear if they were talking to each other or if they just did it automatically because they kind of been trained to do that. Mm-hmm. An emergency, but um, at least someone had to look around about them enough to not just put on the thing, but then um, one of them, and I think it was the, um, it was a guy named Ellison, he would have been uh, turned on the tanks for everyone. They're called they're called um, peeps, I think, or peeps, or peeps. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's an acronym, and I don't know what any of those letters stand for. Anyway. <laughs> Um, but that's um, what it's called. Anyway, it just kind of makes my stomach do a little flip-flop when I think about them in this situation. The seven of them, you know, they wouldn't know exactly what's going on. I don't know if they, I mean, they would have known that something had gone very wrong. Um, but they, it, it takes um, two and a half minutes fall to earth from that height. Wow, that's such and, a long time. Yeah, especially if you think of it, I mean, 10 seconds is long when you're panicking. You know? Yeah. Um, two and a half minutes is a really long time, and, and you know, you can have a pretty substantial experience in that amount of time. And they uh, are in, they're in the cockpit area, aren't they? So they can, yeah. they have a window. I don't know. I, I have, you know, I have no idea. Um, yeah, and I, we're what, all they could, what they could see. Yeah, exactly. it's all speculation. I I realize that kind of silly to. There's no way we yeah. would ever well, know, but. And there's some speculation that they they may have. Um, become unconscious due to like the G forces, but that's what I would time, think. But at the same time, the that portion of the space shuttle is actually uh, rated to be safe way, way beyond the G-forces that they were experiencing. Granted, mm-hmm. that's when the, it's the shuttle and not just a piece of the shuttle falling. Mm-hmm. 
who knows, you know, it's not known if the pressurization held and if they were able to, yep. Um, anyway, it doesn't really matter. The thing, uh, it was a terminal velocity. So when it hit the water, there's no way that any of them even had a chance to survive at that point. Um, they would have been ripped from their seats and mm-hmm. such. Um, but they did, it did stay intact. I mean, it was, it was really badly damaged in, when it hit the water. Um, basically a twisted piece of rubble with a bunch of wires coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they do, uh, the rescue efforts, they do locate it on the bottom of the ocean um, a week or two later. And um, all the people are inside. They're not in great shape because they've been in salt water and yeah, this issues for a couple weeks, but um, actually, in kind of a comedy of errors, they're bringing they're bringing the the people up. Uh, initially, they bring a couple of them up one by one, and then the navy divers who are down there are saying, "Hey, this is too dangerous because it's sort of unstable, and it's really it's a big piece of rubble, and there's all these wires and sharp things sticking out of it." And they say, they're saying, if this isn't safe for us to go in there and get all these bodies out, you need to bring the whole thing back up. Uh-huh. Um, so in the process of bringing it up, one of one of the bodies, and it's Jarvis, it's uh, Gregory Jarvis, he gets away, uh, he floats away, and then they they get him again, and they're bringing him up, and they almost got him to, oh, no, 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 no. He gets away. Um, he eventually floats to the surface. Uh-huh. And, and like, like a day later, maybe. He's, they, somebody stopped him floating on the surface, so then they're going to get him, and they somehow, in the process of going to get him, he sinks again, and they lose him again. Um, and it's, you know, it's weeks later when finally they're able to find him. He's sunk to the bottom again, and they found him. But, um... It's not funny, but there's something a little bit funny to me about that. Well, yeah, it does feel a comedy of errors. It's like, well, what else can go wrong at this point? Seriously, come on. Yeah, um, exactly. So um, let me see what else. I've got uh, millions more pages, so let's see. Well, if you don't mind, one thing um, – I'm trying to be the Jama, which, of course, very big shoes to fill, and, and we we both know that I will fail at that. But um, to to read almost directly from the Wikipedia page and, and to give credit, obviously, to Wikipedia because we always love that resource. resource. But one of the really amazing things I noticed was um, it says approximately 70, 17% of the American population witnessed the launch on television broadcast because of a teacher, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. And the media uh, uh, coverage was so extensive. And one study reported that 85% of Americans surveyed had heard the news within an hour of the accident. So the jump from yeah. 17% watching to 85% um, aware of it. It's just, uh, you know, in one in one hour's time. And, you know, it being in 1986, um, you know, we all know we're – spreads very quickly now. Um, we're all right. much more connected to our 
our smartphones, but at the time, you know, smartphones weren't a thing and the internet was around. But in any case, my point just being it was that it really rocked the nation, clearly. Um, and, you know, I think that it's amazing how fast that news traveled and how far. I think you're right. Yeah, that's crazy. And it's one of those situations where I think people will say, um, you know, I remember where I was when I heard the news of the, the space shuttle um, oh, challenger. Kind of I that reminds me, I have a question, and it's probably one of those Caitlin questions you're going to hate because you probably, you know, didn't research it because it's an oddball one. Go ahead. No, I can't help it. There's all these children all across America. They're all tuning in. They're all supposed to be watching and caring and preparing for this big event. And then someone dies, not just someone, but six people die. Um, seven. seven, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, so six crewmen and, and, and one civilian. Um, my My question that had come to mind earlier was whether or not you know, in any of your research, had there been discussion of, like, school counseling? Um, were were students traumatized, or were they really just fine? They're young. I mean, I don't know how involved, how, you know, connected or or attached to these kids were, but in your research, was that ever even brought up? Like, the fact that no, a lot of these it, students might be traumatized? It wasn't brought up. My... Uh, guess is that in 1986, it just wasn't quite as supportive. No, I agree with that. For uh, sure. It was a little bit more of a like just look up kind of uh, atmosphere around the time. But um, I mean, I think I've definitely read that you know the the families of the astronauts who died who were there at the launch and watched it in real time. Um, you know, they definitely were able to get counseling and, and some help. Um, yeah, but I don't know. As far as everyone else, I, I have no idea. Um, it's a good question. I was, no, I was too young. I don't know. I was alive, but uh, not not, not functioning at that point. So, yes. me neither. Uh, I was four. Okay, so the pieces that were recovered, uh, they are buried in a decommissioned missile, missile silo at Cape Canaveral, uh, except for a section of the fuselage, which is on display at Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. Uh, you can see pictures of that online as well if you've never been there. And it's, it's a piece that says Columbia, so it's kind of a, mm. um, a, you know, a heart-wrenching yeah. kind of thing. So that piece is on display, but everything else is uh, buried in this missile silos. Uh, and uh, very occasionally these days, but pieces still sometimes wash off on the coast. Really? Um, I mean, they have for years after. Um, and when that happens, they send the crew down to collect it, and then they put that in the missile silo. So I don't know why they decided to bury it. In the missile silo, I don't, I don't know. But let's see. There was a big funeral, of course. Oh, that night was supposed to be the State of the Union. Ronald Reagan was president. Oh. Um, but he, he postponed the State of the Union. 
Um, but he did get up uh, in front of the nation and, and give a speech that night about, you know, how incredibly tragic it was and I'll never forget them, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. um, on January 31st, there was uh, a memorial for the seven um, held at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. And Reagan and his wife, Nancy, were there, of course, along with all the families. Uh, there were uh, 10,000 attendees. It was like pretty much every single person who worked at NASA. There were like 6,000 of them, mm-hmm. plus 4,000 other people who just wanted to come. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was this really huge memorial for them. And then the, the families uh, were able to claim the bodies, and three of them were buried. You know, most astronauts have a, like a military background. So three of them were buried at Arlington mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Virginia, and then... Um, the others were buried in their hometowns, except for one of them. I don't remember which one, but one of them was cremated and his ashes scattered at sea. Uh, it's probably Jarvis because he seemed to have a thing about floating around in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> not funny. I no, laughed, but that's funny. not funny. Not funny. Um, um, I just did a Google because I got confused. I wanted to clarify something. Um, because you said Columbia, and then I was like, well, what the heck? I felt like we were doing the Challenger, oh. and then I thought, Challenger, but no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so sorry, I just wanted to Columbia? That was a just once, just once, and that's why I, I was like, I'm not paying good enough attention, <laughs> I'm not, but I, I Googled it. So for our listeners, um, the Columbia was a shuttle that, um, that uh, resulted in d- disaster, catastrophe in 2003, I'm going to tell you that story, too, at the end of this when we're done. Oh, it's okay. A, it's a short story. It's well, and I figured I figured that's probably why you said Columbia. is like, well, they're very they're similar yeah, themes, and so so clearly you probably did research on both. Yes. Um, well, and it's, it's too short of a disaster for its own episode, and I just thought I'll tack it onto this one because it's, it's also <laughs> interesting and kind okay. of related in a way. Um, let's see. But I wanted to say one other thing, something that I learned about but I hadn't previously known. There is a person known as the range safety officer. And what that person does, and it's it's a position, not a specific person, but what that person does and, and does this at every uh, launch to space, um, they're tasked with exploding any debris so that it doesn't hit the ground and injure people. I mean, it never would have occurred to me that we would have a position that does that. But they, like, they're mean specifically it was, responsible for keeping people safe from things that are falling out of the sky after a disaster. So someone is shooting something up into the sky to, to. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, there's <laughs> one of the positions. There's a range safety officer, and so. In this case, it was a man. Um, so when he was, when he saw this happening, because he was there, he was watching, and he had like his hand on the button. And uh, when it went wrong, the um, he had a button that allowed him to uh, detonate 
a little explosion in the two solid rocket boosters that had kind of flown off, buzzing, buzzing erratically off. Uh-huh. It, it actually would have exploded the the uh, external fuel tank as well if it hadn't already exploded on its own. Um, but yeah, so those like basically deconstructed on their own up up above the Earth so that they wouldn't fall and hurt anyone or set anyone on fire or mm-hmm. anything like that. I just didn't yeah. know that was a thing, and I just think it's clever to have something. And most of the time, you wouldn't do anything because the shuttle just goes to goes like it's supposed to go. But right in this case, you've got to constantly be ready just in case something goes wrong. Right. The range safety officer. Probably I'm the only person who finds that interesting. But <laughs> okay, let's see some. Things that happened afterwards, there was a presidential com- uh, commission. Uh, it's called the, the Rogers Commission because the chairman was named Rogers. And they looked into what had gone wrong. Um, and it, the people on the commission, I think some of them were politicians, but there were also some astronauts because I know um, Sally Ride and Neil Armstrong were both on the commission. Oh. And so it was, it was one of those things where they brought – people who had been involved in this decision-making uh, to kind of stand and sit in front of the panel and answer questions in an attempt to determine where where everything went wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was all recorded, too. You can watch that if you want. It's pretty boring, except for a few exciting spots. But they uh, basically determined it was, it was largely human error, um, though no one was specifically you know, evil and at, at fault. Uh, but so they made, cha- obviously they made changes to the O-ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, they improved it and they added a third one. So now mm-hmm. there's three O-rings. Um, but they've also improved it and um, made it safer. Uh, and then they they made some pretty serious changes to the reporting structures at NASA and just generally improve improvements to the organizational culture right so that anyone can speak up you know no matter what level you're on you can express concerns people are encouraged and not discouraged from bringing safety things up um you know it makes sense to me that in the mid-80s there was this kind of rigid reporting structure and especially because so many astronauts came out of the military and that has a culture that's very strict about chain of command. Um, it makes sense to me that it took a little work to get them to loosen up and be like, yeah, I know, we need everyone. Everyone has a say in this. Everyone has has the power to speak up. And, and uh, so that was good. Good changes came out of this disaster, of course. Uh, they didn't fly another shuttle for two and a half years. Um, I think initially they... Uh, Obviously, they needed to make the changes, and the commission needed to finish its work and, and report on what went wrong, and, and the scientists and engineers had to go back in and, and make the ch- some changes, and et cetera. So uh, then the, um, let's see, the Discovery was, the Space Shuttle Discovery uh, launched on September 29th, 1988, and that was a perfect launch, and um, everything went great. And then they started doing regular shuttles again. Mm, okay. 
and that was 88. And then there was not another big disaster until Space Shuttle Columbia in, in 2003. And so I was totally an adult when this happened, and I remember very little about it. I think I was in college and reading The Seven of Mystique and just wasn't that interested. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I remember very little about this, but um, I do uh, want to tell you. So Space Shuttle Columbia took off on January 16th, and then on, let's see, it was the 113th flight in the shuttle program, which I just think it's crazy we took off that many times. Um, it yeah. was going up to conduct science experiments. Uh, it also had a crew of seven, and um, I think a couple of them were from different countries. At least one of them was from Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were doing a bunch of ex- science experiments, which I think um, the, the experiments were for uh, different people all over the world. It was considered kind of a big international thing. Yeah. During the launch, a piece of foam insulation broke off from the shuttle's external fuel tank. So that big, yeah, brown, yeah, brown, red, red, brown piece um, had some foam insulation on it. It broke off, and it struck the left wing of the shuttle. Uh huh. Um, and they they saw that during the launch. You can kind of you can see it with your bare eyes, especially if if it slowed down. Um, and there's a lot of uh, footage of that online that was later shown on the news. Um, so they knew that there could be some damage to the wing, but they didn't know how bad it was. Like, no, you can't see the wing at any point. Uh, they don't have rear view mirrors? From any, from any point. And this particular uh, uh, shuttle mission wasn't going to the space station or anywhere where you know somebody external could get a look at it. Right. And... I mean, maybe they could have done a space walk, but they didn't. Um, so they didn't know what was going on with the wing. And it was, it was later determined that um, actually the Department of Defense had offered to uh, take one of their spy satellites, uh, maneuver it on over, uh, and take pictures. But NASA uh-huh. actually said no. Huh. No need. Don't do that, uh, which is crazy. They... Um, so they kind of just were winging it. They knew they knew that there might be something wrong, but they couldn't really tell for sure. And so they told the the crew um, that everything checked out and was fine, and they had no worries whatsoever about their return to Earth. Mm-hmm. And um, but actually, they did have a lot of worries. And as it was returning, um, and this there's there's footage of this too. Um, footage of mission control. I guess they always record um, what's going on in mission control. It's probably I never reporting. I never want to work in that place. It, was, it would be so stressful. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, anyway, go so ahead. Do you, did you ever watch the footage of when, when the, the guys guys and gals uh, landed that Mars? They did that Mars thing where they had to parachute it out and reverse thrust or something. And they were so they were so excited and so happy that it all worked out. That no, but fun. I 
I'm going to have to Google that because I bet it's, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, okay. go on with your story. In this case, so they're crying, crying for different reasons. So, right. Yeah. It, as they're uh, coming into the earth, they are, um, of course, monitoring everything on their instruments. And the first thing that they notice is there's an abnormal heat reading um, on the left from the left wing, and then the temperature sensors are completely lost mm-hmm. from the left wing, like they're no longer getting a temperature reading. And mm-hmm. then they also have a tire pressure gauge. Um, I mean, they monitor every single system. So then the tire pressure gauge on the left side goes out as well. Um, and then they they just never hear from them again. Um, huh. as it, what happened was that that part of the wing uh, has, it's the front part of the wing and it has a heat shield on it. There's anything that's kind of at the front as it's yes. coming in forward to, facing. to land. It's, yeah, forward facing, yeah. It's got to have a heat shield. And the heat shield was uh, busted through by this piece of foam. And so he got in. He got in. And so they um, they had a fiery reentry. And then that they were over Texas, so that the pieces that were left they, they didn't fall to earth alive, they would have been um killed in the fiery explosion. Mm-hmm. But um those pieces fell over Texas and, and have also been recovered. Um so that was the other major shuttle uh disaster and again that was two thousand three and then we kept doing the shuttle program. Um Oh, well, I should say, the stupid, I mean, of course, there was a commission, again, to find out what was wrong with Columbia, and uh, they found out it was the foam insulation piece, uh, but also, it turns out that was a known issue as well. They knew there was a problem with mm. foam sometimes falling off, and it was like a no, it was, it was recorded in their hmm. documents, like, yep, we have a worry about this. We should try and figure something out, but mm. uh, they didn't do that in time. And so seven, I didn't, I didn't write down their names. I apologize, but there were seven uh, astronauts that died. Um, actually, I happen to remember two of their names because they're cool. Uh, the captain's last name was Husband, Captain Husband, or no, Commander. I'm sorry, Commander Husband. And then the pilot's name, last name was McCool, which <laughs> I just love. Like, as, I think his first name was William, so it was like I'm Billy McCool. <laughs> Okay, one other thing I'm going to say, uh, when Kristen McAuliffe was in that contest to get to go, of course, there were a bunch of other teachers who applied as well, and they just picked one person to be her backup, Mm -hmm. Um, just like in Apollo 13 where everybody has a backup person. Yeah. And then Kevin, Kevin, uh, yep, tell me out. What's his name? Um, Bacon. Kevin Kevin Footloose gets to... Kevin Bacon. Yes. Uh, So her backup was another teacher named Barbara Morgan. And uh, in 2007, uh, she got to go up on this uh, shuttle Endeavor. So they went ahead and did um, kind of of come full circle, and we did eventually send a teacher 
interface. Hmm. And she had been part of part of the original program and had ended up. Um, it was like the uh, understudy for Kristen McAuliffe. So mm-hmm. she did eventually get to go. Hmm. Okay. Which is kind of cool to know. The shuttles were all grounded in 2011. Uh, we still totally have a space program, but we have to go to Russia or wherever, and we've actually paid them to take our astronauts up uh, into space, which is fine. It works okay. <laughs> okay. Questions and concerns? No, I I asked my questions along the way, I feel. Um you know, I had known a little bit more about this disaster than some of the other ones that we've covered. Um, so I knew a little bit more going into it. Um, but, you know, not 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 the details, certainly not about the contest yeah. bit. So The details um, are pretty interesting on this one. Yeah, yeah, they really are. And I think it was fun for me having a little bit of exposure to you know, the NASA fandom and, and, and the moments inside of the command center and all that uh, from, from Apollo 13. So um, I think the next question would be um, what uh, resources you recommend that uh, other people go to? Um, obviously, you did a lot of research on this one. It sounds like you watched a lot of videos and uh, yes, I you could have hear recommended. recordings of things. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, I mean, for, yeah the main thing is Everything was recorded and everything has been released. So you can totally go out and watch, you know, the old CNN coverage or whatever. You can watch, um, you know, basically what was live footage at the time. You can watch them in the control room, all that good stuff. But um, I watched, uh, let's see, the New York Times has a YouTube video. It's part of the Retro Report series, and it's called Space Shuttle. Challenger disaster, major malfunction. Uh, it's about 20 minutes long, and it's super good. Uh, then there's another um, documentary I watched. But this one's about an hour long um, by a company called WJXT Films, and it's called Challenger: A Rush to Launch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, and both of those contain interviews from the engineers and uh, some other astronauts. The people at Mission Control, I mean, it's really great. You get to hear from the actual people who were there and who went through this, including some of the people who, whose fault it was. Um, hmm. I mean, I really think they, you know, it's, it's a massive regret in their life. But uh, let's see. Then two books I recommend. Alan McDonald, he was one of the main engineers who, um, actually, I think he was, like, Head of the engineers, like the engineer, director, or manager. Uh-huh. Uh, he wrote a book afterwards called Truth, Lies, and O Rings Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster. And a journalist named Diane Vaughn wrote a book called The Challenger Launch Decision. Hmm. Both of those are good. And then on a fun note, there is, you know, sometimes you're on YouTube and you're just, you just click on whatever's coming up next. <laughs> and this does not apply to this particular disaster, but it's really funny. Um, a man named Brett Copeland, uh, that's B-R-E-T, that's one T, and Copeland, C-O-P-E-L-A-N-D, he does, um, it's not specifically a TED Talk, but it, it seems like a TED Talk, it's that kind of format. 
uh, and it's called, the video is called How to Land the Space Shuttle from Space. And uh, it's really funny. And it's hmm. also educational because you do learn how to land it. Uh, but it's hilariously funny, and it talks all about how you fly this really terrible airplane uh, and how you manage to finally land it and not skip off into space, et cetera. But he's very, he has a very funny delivery. And it's only about eight, eight or ten minutes long, so it's totally worth a watch. Well, good. I Thank might you. post a link to that even though it doesn't uh, apply because it's really funny. Well, yeah, and in in some cases, it's nice to have something a little humorous to counteract the overwhelming, you know, sadness of the tragedy. So something to stop the tears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, I I will have to see what Jameis says. Whether or not um, we, I don't know, made the grade or or. You know, if this is a pass fail thing, I'm not sure, but uh, what sort of grade she she gives us? Um, Who put her in charge? I don't know, but she did. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, right. But yeah, we'll we'll check in with her um, and 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 see what she thinks about this. Uh, we'll be posting this online so she can uh, potentially even listen to it while she's overseas because those are the, the days we live in now. So. Um, but last uh, thing I just want to say is, yeah. when I go up there on 19, I'm taking my entire collection of Johnny Cash with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm um, just going to be thinking of quotes for for days. I'll just send quotes them to you days. on Facebook. Yeah. All right, well, speaking of social media and Facebook and bothering each other, um, I want to remind our followers, you can find us on Facebook. We do have our own page there. We post the links to all of our, um, not only all of our episodes, but also some of the other links that we we think you might like. For example, that YouTube video that Jillian found that's humorous. Maybe we'll post that one on there. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Um, we've got an email address. It's calamitypodcast.yahoo.com. Um, all of our information can be found on the website, though, um, and uh, links as well to our social media sites. Uh, that website for us is www.calamitypodcast.com. And then last but not least, we also have a profile on Patreon. So if you want to look us up there and learn more about what we're up to, feel free to find us online. Um, but until next time, we hope everybody stays safe. Yeah, stay safe, everybody. Adios.